0: Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me as always is my loyal partner, Mike Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. So this week, not that we like to delve too much in personal news here in this podcast, but I had the misfortune of moving, and I reached out to our fans on Twitter to see if they would be willing to entertain the possibility of getting to know Walker a little bit better and him having his do his personal top ten just to help prevent me from having to do too much prep work in this, my my hour of need when my life is in shambles and my body is undergoing a staged shutdown of all essential and non-essential functions. And uh, the response from Twitter was uh, relatively strong. Uh, Some of the responses were, uh, suck it up, princess. There was one that said, your salty tears are but spice for my enjoyment. And then there was the one that said, dance for my amusement, dance monkey boy dance, which I thought was particularly pointed. Uh, Another response was, what's a podcast? But that was for my father, so we can set that one safely aside. Of course, the nail in the coffin of this idea was when I pitched it to Walker, and his immediate response was, that sounds like me having to do prep, and I'm not going to do that. So that was the end of that. And uh, so thank you very much for your feedback, everyone who reached out online, and thanks also for Walker for killing any attempt to uh, ease my burden in this My Hour of Need. Well, you'd think, you know, making up all
1: those fake Twitter accounts and coming up with all those comments was a lot, and I could just do the top ten, but I had much more fun doing it the other way, so there you go.
0: Once you set up the Russian bot farms, that means that you never have to do any other prep ever again. Exactly. That That was well done. Well done, Walker. Anyway... As per usual, we are going to be talking about games today, here at So Very Wrong About Games. We're going to be talking about games we played last week, and allow me to assure you, loyal listeners, that will be a relatively brief and expurgated version, because we haven't had that much time for games, but don't worry, we'll have lots to say. We'll be talking about our feature game this week, which is Rising Sun. We have now gotten into a position where we think we can offer our reasonably mature thoughts on the matter, although for Walker, as per usual, he will just be issuing fart noises and giggling like a small school child. And then there's our topic for the week, which is inappropriate themes. And there's very much a question mark on this because we're going to talk about whether or not there is such a thing as inappropriate or morally inappropriate subject matter for board games. So with that in mind, let us begin with what we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? I wanted to begin with an errata mark because I have three erratas from next week. From next week, this is, from this is future future. from last week. Is this like buying those blank indulgences that the papacy used to sell just before the Reformation, where you could just you could just set, issue an errata, leave the topic blank, and like, then say whatever you want?
1: Exactly. Just look at the architecture we got from all of that money. So let's not anyway. First of all, we talked about using the Rising Sun tokens to get random factions and of course you cannot do that because the fox clan came with no cardboard secondly i talked about attending breakout that's not going to be happening so i apologize to that i recently realized my mental state needs me to work and they have scheduled me for that weekend so that's out and for whatever reason i referred to mark as a dear friend last week i must have been either drunk or high so i also apologize
0: for that obvious lie glad we covered all that walker that's a We apologize very much for all the errors, and we will... (laughs) It's good good to know that you're going to be in town uh, when Breakout is happening, even though you're going to be working and uh, obviously reconsidering your social relationships.
1: So, what did you play last week, Walker? Last week, I played... (laughs) Another quick side note, I I don't want to say... I don't want to, you know, go down Arcane Academy... Straight
0: to the format! Straight to
1: the format. No, no, this is for games I played. I was on my way to the, the gaming meetup, and I got a flat tire. I didn't want to play any games when I got there, but I still got pulled into a game... In a foul mood.
0: I would I would like to issue the same quote that you gave to me a few moments ago, which is, what's with all the excuses? Suck it up. Well, anyway, Arcane Academy did not have a great experience with it. It
1: really felt as though it definitely awards the people who have already played before. It is a game where you are drafting Off the table tiles to go onto your tableau that are going to create these spell chains. And then once someone has played eight cards, eight spells, then you do another turn with the person that has the most spells out, i.e. triggered the eight spells, gets a final turn, which I thought was the person who is winning gets to win more. Overall, not a
0: great experience. Only played it once. That was Arcane Academy. I've only played it once myself. It does seem to be a very, very light game, and it has a sort of spatial connection element that I am not generally a huge fan of, and I wasn't a huge fan of it there. And it reminded me a bit of the sort of very, very light drafting slash tableau building that you see in games like Seasons. And I thought Seasons was Seasons was fine, and I thought it was fine in Arcade Academy as well. But yeah, you seemed really ang- you seemed immediately after playing really angered by the end game condition.
1: I, was, I think that was just mostly the overall mood that I was in.
0: Okay, sure, but you're not going to be you're not going to be eager to try it again.
1: No, definitely not. <laughs> Fair enough.
0: Last week I played Dogs of War. This is a game that I've mentioned in passing before. This is a worker placement game that Company cool or Not put out a few years ago. This was designed by Paolo Mori. He also of Ethnos fame, who uh, also published by uh, Company cool or Not. And Dogs of War, and to a lesser extent, Ethnos, are what I often point to when people make disparaging remarks about Kulminiornot's catalog in general, if they make sweeping, dismissive noises. Look, I like a lot of their other stuff. I like Rum and Bones a whole heck of a lot. I like Xenoshift a whole heck of a lot. I like Blood Rage, and we'll talk about Rising Sun in a minute, but I can certainly understand that you might want to pigeonhole Kulminiornot's offerings. And to a certain extent, that's fair. Their in-house designs, typically led by Michael Chennault, tend to be very much of a type. But they also publish some really good Euro games. And I think Dogs of War is a really good Euro game. It's hard to make a worker placement game that has a lot of player interaction, but Dogs of War has got tons of it. And it's beautiful on the table, and it's fun, it's quick, it's reasonably easy to explain. And it's got this brilliant sort of stock mechanism that just adds an extra level of detail to these seesaw battles that you're going to be they're going to be playing out it uh we mentioned it also when talking about kickstarter exclusives the kickstarter although it didn't raise a hell of a lot of money it didn't crack a million for example which by cmon standards means it was probably a relative failure i don't know what they were expecting it to make but you know cmon now expects to crack a million at least it had a whole bunch of uh, Kickstarter unique factions, and when I played the retail version, I wanted those extra factions, so I actually tracked them down. And so now you have these tons and tons of really cool player busts, which is what the the, the the minis are for your workers. Anyway, I'm a fan of Dogs of War. I always enjoy it. I don't think I've ever encountered anyone who seriously disliked it. I will note, and this actually is the first time Walker is hearing this, that I play by the designer-suggested variant rules. Uh, the designer himself showed up on BoardGameGeek a few years ago, and he made several subtle, but I think extremely good variations on the system. It used to be the case that getting what's called a crushing victory was borderline impossible. Uh, and he made that a little bit more easy, a little bit easier to get, but by the same token, by, uh, uh, by no means a sure thing. And he made the end game a little less arbitrary. And uh, so if you, if you have the game and you haven't tried it by the designer suggested variants, just go to the Dogs of War page on BoardGameGeek and look under variants and you'll find a post by Paolo Mori. And, uh, I've tried them now three or four times and it's really, really, really solid. So I enjoyed the game before. I like it even better with the variants and, uh, yeah, that's Dogs of War. What did you think of it,
1: Walker? I don't understand why this game doesn't get more buzz than it does. It's a very solid game and with experienced players, I think you can knock it out in like almost 30 minutes.
0: I wouldn't go that far. Maybe 60. It, it Well, the thing is, it feels very brisk. There's almost no downtime, even for a worker placement game. It's usually very, very quick in that sense, and everything moves along at a good pace. And by virtue of the fact that you're constantly making very tangible incremental progress, this isn't point salad, but you're always getting these tangible specific uh, advances or, or, or battles that you're fighting in. And that certainly helps uh, make it feel faster than a lot of its competitors. But I cut you off. You were saying how good the game that I introduced you to you was. Yeah. It's-
1: Isn't it just three rounds?
0: No, it's four. Four. All right. Well, maybe more than thirty minutes, but still, yes.
1: Great. Like you said, no downtime. Easy to teach. Always a huge variability because the cards switch around all the time. And I really liked how the end game state developed. When they take the final round, they take what you're doing is you're you're pushing these families higher and higher on the track because they face off against each other every round. And in the final round, they take the top two and pit them against each other and then they work their way down. I thought that was a great mechanism for the
0: end and that that is indeed one of the variants suggested in the uh, by the designer because in the way in the rules is published it's random every year. Oh really? Wow. Yes, yes. It that is it it certainly helps amp the tension because it can be the case because it, it fundamentally in terms of the scoring it's an investment game. It's a, it's a dressed up stock game effectively dressed up as a battle game where you're doing these tugs of war. And if it's a case that as was the case in our game there were these two houses that nobody loved. It was very funny. It was it was You know, the the standard trash talk that we have in our group about how nobody likes the purple family and nobody likes the red family, they were just getting their butts handed to them every round. And in Dogs of War, that can be somewhat, somewhat huge. Again, these are not player factions. These are factions in the game. So it wasn't like we were hammering on an individual player. And at the, the the end of the game, there were the two strongest families that were fighting off each other. And that was very, very important. But almost equally amusing was the two weakest families finally squaring off yeah. against each other. It was the loser's bracket. Yeah, Who's not going to get invited to the Christmas party? It was- it, exactly. I was almost more interested to see who was going to finally eke out a win on the final final year instead of the, 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 the family that was going to take it all. Anyway, I highly recommend it. It's good even without the Kickstarter exclusives. Uh, it's just, you know, you, you have access to fewer factions, but that's fine. And I've never had a bad time with Dogs of War. Perfect. What else did you play this week? Um, so I played a game of Rising Sun. I played another game of Rising Sun. There was, uh, there was that game with the... the, the mini- oh, yeah, it was Rising Sun. Yeah, the one that... I played uh,
1: a different one in feudal Japan where you use all these weird gods. It was. Oh, really? Yes. Do you and- remember what it was called? Rising Sun.
0: Oh, great, great, great. Interesting.
1: All right, on to the news and why it really doesn't matter. And I'm sorry if you use this podcast to get your board gaming news and we fail to deliver, but this is what interests me. Mark, what do you have first?
0: I've been following in a very sort of peripheral way the development of an unpublished game called Deep Enemy Frontier. This was supposed to be a, uh, well, it was presented as a sort sort of almost kind of sequel to the concepts introduced in Vast Crystal Caverns. Vast Crystal Caverns, I thought, was a good idea in search of a game. Uh, as a game, I don't think it works. It barely works at all. And the rules presentation is so bad. And the gameplay is so shallow that mostly you're just grappling with the rules the, the rule systems. And I looked at the rules for the print and play version of Deep. And I thought that it, it showed promise. I never printed it out because I'm really bad at prototyping and I, I can't be bothered. Anyway, it was canceled. Then it was uncanceled. And now it's been canceled again. And that's not really the interesting part. The interesting part is now the designer has claimed publicly that basically the publisher, the, the uh, supposed publisher of the game, Later Games, uh, of Patrick Later, he of, you know, vast, uh, who published Vast Crystal Caverns, basically is in breach of contract, that they signed a contract whereby he was given an advance and he was supposed to retain all the rights to the game if they weren't going to publish it. And now he's claiming two things. Number one that he is owed all the rights and the publisher is retain- seeks to retain some of the rights. So there's that. That is just a purely contractual dispute, and I think that that will eventually be resolved probably by whoever can't afford to pay their attorney. But the more, the more troubling claim, and this is something that I've been thinking about generally about board game publishing, is his claim was that they started developing deep with him, and they then used a lot of those core concepts for their game route. And so his basic claim is that they, they, they signed him to develop this game, they developed this game in conjunction with him, then used all those concepts in another game that they were publishing by another guy who's not involved in this, in, uh, uh, who's not involved in the core company at all, Cole World, who's published other things, like an in Infamous Traffic, which is a brilliant name for a game, but anyway. And now that they've published, that they're publishing Root, and they've taken the ideas, now they're just dumping... Uh, deep and they say that they don't have any further contractual obligation now this story i don't have a dog in the fight i haven't backed anything by later games the fact that i thought that vast is 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 not a good game is irrelevant vastly inferior yes <laughs> that that was yeah, very good it's always good to know that as the editor i'm never going to have to find a rimshot sound effect because your jokes are always so bad that they don't even <laughs> deserve that even a sarcastic rimshot effect and the the reason why I find this case interesting is as follows. It's not because I believe one of the, the, the parties involved and I don't believe the others. It's that if this claim is true, and re- remember I say if, Samuel ba- Bailey, uh, the designer of Deep, was basically manipulated and exploited. And the thing is he doesn't really have much of a recourse because you can't patent game mechanics. You can't copyright game mechanics. Well you can patent some things. Anyway, not to get too deep into the law, but my my understanding is that if that is true, if those claims are true, he doesn't have a recourse. There's nothing he can do about it. There's really not much stopping you functionally as a as a game publisher to contract with a game designer, rip off their ideas and publish something else. Now there, there are a whole bunch of of indirect Effects to, to not make you do that. This is a relatively small community in a small market, and there, if if credible claims like this came out and people believed them, there might be a significant market backlash. But maybe again, there, maybe there wouldn't. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to, to, to organize things like boycotts and spread the word about stuff like this. But I've been thinking a lot about. When does borrowing go too far? And I think this is a a related topic. I've been reading rules lately for a lot of games and I've been trying, I'm going to try to track them down and play them that are very clearly, very strongly inspired by another game design. And sometimes they acknowledge this and sometimes they don't. And so there's this whole issue about how much acknowledgement is required. When is a game design too close to another game design? Cole Roll, the designer of Root, has said, look, here are all my designer diaries that I publicly posted. It's very clear how my design process went. Samuel Bailey's like, no, 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 that's not how it happened. There were all these game design problems that I told you how to solve because we were still working under the same company. Anyhow, it's a huge mess and nobody's going to win in this this situation, that's for sure. But it raises a whole bunch of interesting issues independently of who you believe, And sure enough, it being the internet, and because of the way that Mr. Bailey has aired his concerns, everyone, of course, has weighed in with their own two cents, and things have gotten very vituperative. As per usual, the discussion on BoardGameGeek Geek got very nasty very quickly, whereas the discussion on Reddit remained civil, which again shows you that the Board Game subreddit is a parallel inversion of normal reality. But these are issues that I've been thinking about, and so I found the case very fascinating. So if you're inclined to read many, many pages of a lot of people getting very angry, sometimes with no reason, I thoroughly recommend you go doing some research on this uh, game Deep Enemy Frontier. Anyway, I wish the best to everyone involved. I hope that this gets resolved as amicably as humanly possible. I hope Deep sees the light of day if it is a, a worthy design. And it's a mess. So that's my news. My news is about a board game.
1: How'd you get that in there? Come on! <laughs> it was great! Well,
0: I thought it was good. You
1: jerk! <laughs> it's so good. All right, we'll decide that. All right, so my news is about Ascendancy, again, from Gale Force 9. Uh, their base game came with... I think cards for up to 10 factions, at least nine factions. And now they're up to eight. introduced two new factions, Endorians and Vulcans. So that's exciting to me.
0: The Endorians are those guys with the, the the, the blue faced guys with the weird little little things coming out of their heads. Yep. Little satellite antennas coming out of their foreheads. Okay. Can I ask an incredibly nerdy question? Actually, it's not that nerdy. It's probably, it's probably the case that it is, it, it shows just enough knowledge to be regarded as nerdy, but not enough knowledge to be super nerdy. I thought the Vulcans were members of the Federation, and I thought that the Federation were already a faction in the game. So how's that going to work? I don't know. Okay, That's a great question. I'd have to know. I would have to know maybe they're not
1: actually part of the Federation. They sort of brought humans in to the... I'm not sure. Okay. That would take someone that was higher higher ranking than I am. Are we going to have to issue an errata next week oh, about
0: Star Trek? I don't, that... I don't think that needs to be official errata. The fact that we don't know that, I don't really think that's... This is the worst of all possible worlds. I I never wanted to be in a position of speculating blindly on my podcast without sufficient knowledge. And at the same time, I never wanted to talk in my podcast about Star Trek. And here I am doing both. Life sucks. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's unfortunate. What else? Do you have anything else I've got?
0: Axes and Allies
1: Zombie from Hasbro. Dear Lord. Yep. I guess part of me is surprised they haven't done it already, but... Yeah, I'm sure this is going to... We'll bring this up again, or I'll bring this up again later when we... Talk about our inappropriate games. Okay,
0: sure. We'll table that for a moment then. Yep. And are you all done then? What else you got for news? That's, that's really all that caught my eye. I don't have a, a, a kitchen or internet at my home, and so I haven't really been in a position to uh, keep up to date. Do you have your tier bib on? Good. All right. Moving on to the feature game, which is Rising
1: Sun. First, I'll say, what is Rising Sun? It's this giant game with tons of plastic... Set in feudal Japan, they have eight different factions, with two of them being Chinese factions. They have their own giant buckets of uh, historical Chinese gods that you can call upon, all the Japanese gods, tons of cards, huge map. That's what it is now. What do you do in Rising Sun? In Rising Sun, you have seven, three seven turn rounds in which you need to figure out the best way to earn victory points and at the same time slow down your opponents. Whether it be with cards, end of game cards, during the game earning points from province tiles, whatever it is, earn the most points, win the game.
0: I'd like to start by talking about one of my biggest negatives with the game, and that's how this game was positioned, how this how this game's rules are presented. And to a certain extent, how this game was sold to us, this game was sold to us as a negotiation and diplomacy game. That's how it was presented. That's always the emphasis that's put on the rules documentation. that's definitely how it was presented in terms of its design pedigree and that in all the presentations and all the ads and all the copy that Coleman or not gave to us in terms of things like the Kickstarter campaign or news updates, they always emphasized this deal making and the diplomacy aspects. I don't think it materializes.
1: So far, it has not. Whether
0: it does in the future,
1: it might. I don't think the the materials are there to support it either. The the, the staunch of gold and or Ronin, I don't think exists in order
0: to supplement this negotiation system. I've commented before, mostly in, in the context of Sidereal Confluence, a game that I've talked about a lot, that a good trading game uses asymmetry in order to facilitate deal making, Namely... I'm in a position where I have lots of resources, a surplus of resources that I don't need, and I can therefore use that to supplement the resources that I don't have. Rising Sun doesn't really present that to you. Most of the time, for many factions, it's just because you never have enough of anything to give away. But it's also the case that it's often the case that what it is that you want someone to do for you, there's no, you couldn't give them enough money to convince you. That's not necessarily a problem. And let me, let me talk about one of the ways in which I think the game really does sing in order to talk about that. And that is the fundamental mechanism in this game is not negotiation, it's role selection. When it's your quote unquote turn, you play what's called a political mandate and there's five different ones and you get to do a super powered version of it and everyone else gets to do a weaker version of it. And there's a certain, there, there's, there's a staggering amount of variety in terms of what that disparity looks like. For example... And I've said this before, one of the five political mandates means that you do something and nobody else does anything. That's the most extreme version. And then there are ones where you do something super important and everyone else gets to do something comparatively trivial. And then there's, all the way to the other end, there's the train, the train mandate, which I think is the example of the one where you get the lowest competitive advantage. Although, again, situationally, sometimes that's exactly what you want to do. And normally, if this were actually a negotiation game, you would be able to take this moment of you having the power of selection and really offer it up for sale. There's a game that does this, I think, really well called Chicken Caesar, which is a hilarious theme game. It's about chickens running a coop styled after the Roman Republic, and I think it's done very well. It's a cute game. I love it. And any time you have the magical golden rooster, and well, it's not actually magical, but I I like more magic in my life you get to sell your influence. It's like, okay, well, I might be inclined to do this. Offer me money to convince me to do something else. And so there's lots of deal-making and and haggling to be done. In Rising Sun, I've never been in a position and I've never seen anyone be in a position where they're looking at a whole bunch of mandates and saying, eh, I'm kind of indifferent as to these various things make me an offer. Usually it's the case that 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 choke point, that decision point of having a political mandate is so important to you and the benefit is so crucial that there isn't really much that other people could offer you. I actually asked people on Twitter, could, could you give me an example of interesting deals? And the most interesting deal that someone that someone mentioned to me that happened in their game was, once someone was going to do an action that was going to get them two Ronin, I offered them three Ronin to do something else. Like, yeah, sure, that's great, win-win. If the best that you have to do from these mandates is to get two Ronin, someone can offer you slightly more, and that'll happen. But those those kinds of incremental differences, I have I have yet to see materialize. Usually, it's well, obviously, I have to do this to get me this benef- beneficial thing. And if someone's sitting clockwise, uh, s- someone's sitting around the table for me is like, well, I'd rather you do this other thing they don't have it in their power to realistically offer you enough to change your mind. Has that been your
1: your experience too? So far, I think it's really going to depend on player count as well. I could see in a three-player game where you only have one battle, or even in some territories where there is no battle, where you just have, you're the only one with troops there. Now you have this money, you know, that you don't need anymore, so you can, you know, quickly use it, you know, to, to support your, you know, things that you need done, you know what I mean? So I can see in certain circumstances where... It might happen.
0: I agree. I'm open to the fact that in certain circumstances, with some groups, you're going to see more deal-making than we do. Absolutely. And as I've said before, you can play Hansa Teutonica or Tigris and Euphrates as a diplomacy game. They don't lend themselves to that particularly well, but you can do it, and the amount of table talk will vary considerably by groups of people. But to my mind, what makes a really good negotiation game, what makes a good diplomacy game, what makes a good trading game, is that the economy or the action economy of the game Is such that in order to get things done, it's very easy to conduct transactions, and it's always been—it's always obviously beneficial even to new players how they might want to engage in deals. And of of the games that I played in Rising Sun, more than one of them has seen zero money change hands, right? And the game still worked. So does that mean that it's a crappy negotiation game, or it's a good game that also sometimes has deal-making? I think it's the latter. I think it's a good game that sometimes also has deal-making. I just think it was a little strange how it was presented to us. I'm not accusing them of, of lying to us or anything. It's just a little strange, that's all. I believe it was strange, but I think it was more like, on even one of the play tests we did,
1: I think the way he presented it that way as well, and I think it was just to try to get people to do it, whereas if you, you know what I mean, if you downtone it and just put it in there as, oh, and by the way, then it might not happen as much. Whereas if you bring it to the forefront and try to make
0: it this big thing, maybe people are, will be more obliged to do it. Sure. But I think even that is a missed opportunity because let's 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 use this to se- segue into, um, I think, a corollary to this. So let me just sum up. I think that the role selection is really, really cool and really, really well done. There are these very consequential impacts of selecting a role versus selecting some other kind of role. And we've both criticize. we both criticized other role selection games where it really doesn't matter. You can get done whatever you want to get done by whatever means, and all the roles will be selected anyway, so who cares? This is not the case in Rising Sun. It really matters who picks what and when. This actually leads to, to, to one of my criticisms about, again, how the game was presented, because, I th- and I think this is true of, of both of our experiences, the first couple of games we played we felt that the system was kind of strangely opaque we had a difficult time we're both experienced gamers and you know at least one of us is reasonably smart we had a we had somewhat of a difficult time anticipating the consequences of the actions, about seeing more than one step ahead of what was going on, and so sometimes things would happen like, oh, oh, that was the result of what I just did, huh? Strange, not strange, bad, but just strange. This is this is room room to think about, which is is fine. And a lot of those consequences I really really like. A lot of those uh, ripple effects of okay, this is what happens when this mandate happens before this other mandate. This is what happens when my ally is this faction as opposed to this other faction. This is what happens when I go at a things like that but one thing that happens that is extremely consequential that I really 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 strongly dislike and is a bugbear for many gamers turn order is crucial in this game where you are sitting around the table and the turn order of who picks what when and of of the order of actions is super 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 important for example if you are sitting to the left of somebody who picks the train mandate, which is just buy a card on the table. That's hot. You get to get second pick of whatever you want on, on the table. That's great. You didn't do anything to earn that. You just happened to be sitting there. That's great. If you are to the left of the person who chooses recruit and you have to be the first person to put your dudes on the map and you have to be the first to commit militarily to various things, that's terrible so now if this were genuinely a negotiation game you'd then be able to be like look 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 shoot take take train which benefits me you know say to the person on your right take train not not recruit but again there's just not enough room for that to happen due to how the economy works all all well and good that's fine and what i'm getting to just to square the circle in terms of how you know they they really shouldn't have emphasized the negotiation aspects as much they really should have emphasized Every time they wanted to talk about deal making, I wish they had instead said, "Think about where you're sitting around the table. Think about what is going to happen based on what the person before you and the person after you does. Think about when you want various things to happen, and let that influence the deal, the the partnerships you make. Think about uh, use that to think about the people with whom you pick fights. Think about that in terms of the mandates you pick as opposed to the mandates you don't pick. Because every time I play now, it's the common rookie mistake to just ignore tr- uh, seating order." And be blind to the consequences of that, because it is massive.
1: Has that been your experience? Yep, no, for sure. And especially knowing who's going to be able to pick two of the mandates a turn, as opposed to just one, right? And and knowing who to ally and who to get the most benefit. Going back to allies, and I think they specifically use that word to make it more than it actually is. Because being allied with someone really gives you hardly zero benefit whatsoever there is like this harvest action which could be huge but in almost every instance that I've been someone's ally has been zero to me more advantage to them and the other only other good one were was the mar- and martial order which lo- allows you to build castles the only way to get more strongholds on the board other than that the rest of them no big deal whether they're your ally or not everyone pretty well gets to do the action anyway you save a dollar you get one extra troop that's it so I think they use the word ally to make it a little more stronger than it really is. Because when you break an ally, it's really not that not a huge problem. Speaking of great uh, game mechanics, let's now talk about the gods. Along the top of the board, you have a random four gods that you're going to choose from every game. Which is another great aspect because it will be different every time. Not only does it really change the game which gods are picked, sometimes it can really matter in what order they go in at the top of the board. And how the gods work is when a recruit action happens, when you're allowed to place figures on the board, you can instead place what we call Shinto up on the gods. And when a god phase happens, which is four times in a turn, whoever has the most force on a particular god will get to do whatever power that is. And I really feel that all the powers on the gods are all well balanced. They can be uh,
0: very situationally powerful and uh, are a great addition to the game. It's a little area majority element on top of this uh, area control battle game. And it's typically decided by ones or twos, which again, makes the order so important. This is not a game about... Negotiation diplomacy. This is a game about turn order, in in elements like that. And if you overcommit too soon, you're going to be in serious trouble because someone can snake it out from under you. So that sort of ties in the honor track as well. They have
1: these honor tracks and all sorts of games. Like I can't think of them all. It's the, like off the top of my head, Mage knight has the you know, are you good, are you evil? A lot of these games have these tracks, and they're fairly meaningless. and this one, it is exactly the opposite. It's almost always come into play. Even one of the factions, you know, triggers off of it, and it's even something you have to uh, play towards, and I thought they did a fantastic job on that as well.
0: It's very interesting, and it's well done, and I hate arbitrary tiebreaker mechanisms or ones that are hard to adjudicate and the honor track makes it very very easy because ties are common in this game ties are relatively frequent because we're talking about a relatively low figure count in most instances so just being able to you know know who's at the top of the honor track breaks all the ties makes things very easy but this raises another problem i have with the game a lot of people have been commenting on the balance of this clan or that clan or the balance of this card versus that card i haven't seen anything egregious Certainly nothing that would make me want to pull out, you know, bring out a banhammer or something like that. But one thing that does trouble me a great deal, and I started noticing around game two or three, and it's become more prevalent, I think, as time goes on. It's not so much the balance, it's how the different pieces interact with each other to affect balance. Let me give you an example. We talked about how there's going to be four random gods. Well, there are two clans, and again, this is just off the top of my head that really care about which of the gods are out there for example there's the sun clan which is one of the chinese clans and they really really love being at the top of the honor track amaterasu is the goddess that brings you to the top of the honor track if she's not in the game then there are it is comparatively much more difficult to stay at the top of the honor track sometimes it's impossible and based on what other card sets you might have randomly selected for your setup again the variety is incredible in this game There might only be one single way to climb up the honor track, and that's by doing a very specific thing in a battle. We'll get to that later when we start talking about battles. So if Amaterasu isn't in the game and the card set isn't there, staying at the top of the honor track is borderline impossible and really, really, really hard. Similarly, the benefit that the Dragonfly Clan has is their mobility. They get to move wherever they want and they get to deploy wherever they want. But if the god that gives you free movements is out, that lets you get extra movements all the time, if they're out, then suddenly the Dragonfly Clan isn't as cool, because this other clan that has some other benefit on top of that gets to move around wherever they like. Similarly, things can get a little bit weird by player count. The Fox Clan gets to pop up wherever there's a battle if they're not already there. But the number of battles you have on the map is a function of the player count. So if you're in a three-player game, well, you're probably not going to use it that much. But if you're in a six-player game, suddenly you have a lot more options available to you. And so some of these balance consequences strike me as not necessarily super problematic, but a little unfortunate and a little janky.
1: That being said, there are so many things interacting with each other. You have have a card system, you have the god system, you have the battle system, and the fact that there are five different card sets that you're going to randomize before every game, and you have, like I said, you have the gods that you're going to randomize between each game, and you have eight different factions that also have to interact with each other, and the fact that you have all of this stuff clashing in one game, and it still sort of feels balanced,
0: I, I think he did a pretty good job. It's very impressive, and again, the, the, the joy in this game for me is... ...getting a better understanding of how these different systems interact... ...and in the context of a game, knowing what levers to pull... ...to manipulate all these other subsystems. For a game with a, a not a particularly heavy rule set... It's, ...it's reasonably approachable, it's not simple, it's not an intro game... ...but it's certainly not a heavyweight game... ...but it has more system interactions than a lot of other heavyweight games that I've played. So yes, absolutely that was well done. But my point is that sometimes, based on which random elements are in the game during setup... ...these systems will interact in radically different ways... In ways that sometimes strike me as problematic in terms of letting people's special powers sing, because we've talked about this before. In a game where you have special powers, in a game where there's faction asymmetry, you want to everyone's power to feel a unique, cool, special, and, and nifty. And sometimes because the the, the god you need isn't there or because the god you don't want is there, you're going to feel less special. Or, for example, and this is just a a blatant instance, there are the two Chinese factions that each have their own set of the so-called seven lucky gods. If no matter how many players are sitting around the table, if only one player is one of the Chinese factions from the Dynasty Invasion expansion, then they will have access to these cards that no one else gets to buy. So they know that whenever they get around to buying them, they'll be there. But if it just so happens that two of the dynasty invasion factions are there, well, then suddenly there's there's introduced scarcity for those cards. Suddenly two players are competing for them instead of one. I'm not necessarily claiming that this is a serious imbalance. What I'm saying is it's that those kinds of consequences of systems interacting strike me as unsatisfyingly arbitrary rather than the interesting way of systems interacting as opposed to like i bought this power which lets me put this guy which and then triggers this other power which lets me do this thing on the map that's cool the whole sort of oh somebody else drew the other dynasty invasion faction oh well i guess i have to worry about buying the turtle boy first exactly or we only have three players and this per- this person particularly got this
1: one faction and it doesn't work well with a lower player count stuff like that unfortunately i just think it's it's something that when you have so many different systems working together, if you want them radically different and to feel unique, I think problems are just going to come up.
0: I agree. It's the same. And this is by no means unique to Rising Sun. This happens as well in Cosmic Encounter, right? If you have a power that completely undercuts some other person's power in Cosmic, and this happens a non-trivial number of times, that's desperately unsatisfying. I just want to flag it that this this kind of problem exists to a lesser extent in Rising Sun, but it should happen to a lesser extent in Rising Sun than Cosmic because Cosmic's universe, no pun intended, of possible setups is exponentially greater than Rising Sun's universe of possible setups. Walker, you want to tell us about how battles work in Rising Sun? And, and I want to talk about the battles, yes. I think
1: if you ever played Cry Havoc, I really think you'll have... It has a very Cry Havoc feel to him where you have this board and the first thing is separku, Then we have hostage and then we have... Higher Ronin. Higher Ronin. And then we have the Poets. And what we're going to do is we're going to take all the money that we've collected throughout our seven turns for that season. And when there's a battle, you're going to secretly bid on these four different areas. And only one person in the battle is going to be able to trigger these. And it's going to be the person who's bid the most money. I really feel that it's very well done. It can be a whole different strategy to the game. Are, you know, are you going to fake it? Are you going to give him are you going to give up some coins? Because the winner is going to give his coins to all the losers. So are you going to not bid so much so you don't give coins away? Are you going to stop him from scoring victory points? Because if they win Sepriku and they kill all their men, then they're going to get victory points for that. They could even have cards that are going to give them more victory points. The poets means anyone that dies during that particular battle gives that person victory points too so you want to outbid there as well not so much not so much to get the points yourself in any of these areas or get the ability in any of these areas whereas to just stop the other person you could bet in ronin you might not even have any ronin but you're bidding there so they can't use theirs and i I really think it's a fantastic system
0: i wish that cry havoc's system was half as good as this one Because the problem with Cry Havoc, which had a similar kind of board where all these areas where you could quote-unquote bid troops, there weren't enough troops in the fights to make these things really interesting. And one person placed openly first, and then the second person who won ties placed second after them. And so you'd end up in situations where, you know, three guys are fighting two guys, but the guy with three guys is losing all ties. You know, just on the face of it, that's not a good bidding system. True, but I mean, I think in Cry
1: Havoc, it was more like a... a not a, so much a standoff as a trade off, right? You can see, okay, well, he's bid there and there, and you can sort of save yourself in some areas, and you've just given up the other areas type thing. You know what I mean? You're sacrificing this to get something else. I think it's just different, but same sort of feel.
0: right. but when the when the figure count is that low and when you when you get to make these decisions deterministically and you know you're placing second and winning ties, the number of possible trade-offs, the number of possible configurations gets very, very small unless and until the system gets elaborated by other things. And anyway, I've said I've said a lot about why I don't like cry havoc, but here, because it's based on coins, and it's a blind bid. Normally I don't like blind bidding. I was actually very nervous when I saw that this was a game where fighting was determined in in part based on blind bidding, but but man, it really works, I think. Because if you've got 7 bucks and you're fighting somebody who's even got 3, Suddenly, you're nervous, right? Because with $7, you can't run the table, because if they bid all their three-on-one, then you have to figure, what is it that I really need here? What is it that I really need to deny for them? And all of this, again, touches on all these sub-mechanisms. What does their faction power let them do? What do their cards let them do? What am I looking for out of this fight? Is this just a fight for points? Is this just a fight for where I want money? Is this a fight where I need to win the fight? because there are all these different ways to profit off of all these different in outcomes and so i think it's really the battle system itself and parenthetically it's worth noting none of these weird special powers or weird god effects or weird card abilities interact that much with the actual grist of the bidding system nothing breaks that fundamental core it's clean it's great and the way the economy works there's enough interesting variation sometimes when you just reveal screens it's like yeah i saw that coming whatever and sure that's fine but then there are tons of battles where there's tension you don't know what the other player is going to do you think you know what their priorities are but they might change on a dime and then you reveal them both and you realize ah i've i've made the perfect I've made the perfect setup. I'm getting everything I want out of this fight, and my opponent is getting nothing out of they wanted, or vice versa. So there's a great moment of of revelation for everyone involved. So every game of Rising Sun I believe I've, I've played has had at least two or three highly consequential, highly surprising results. And that's great in a battle system. That's what you want. And although it's difficult to foresee the consequences, it's not random. It's purely deterministic in a blind bidding way. It's deterministic in the way that rock paper scissors is deterministic. Some people say it's not, but I mean strictly speaking it is. And the way that that's when the economy really shines. That's where everything else feeds into the system of these battle results and it's great. I think the battle system is 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 excellent. That's what
1: I do when I explain the game. I just show that card and say this is the game. This is what you need to know. This
0: is what it all funnels into. Everything is going to tie back into this and and it and they and it makes sense. Yeah, because that's where the bulk of your points are going to come from, either through winning fights or very frequently, and this is how you play practically every game, through not winning fights, but not winning fights in a very point-heavy way because that's, that's what there, there's room for. This actually is one of the ways in which this game is very similar to Blood Rage. Blood Rage presents itself as a game where you go and smash and grab and you know you win fights and get points that way. But there are tons of successful strategies in Blood Rage where you don't win fights or you certainly don't win all of them. That was done through building up your own cards in Blood Rage. Here in Rising Sun, it's baked into the system. Everyone has access to those strategies and tactics right from the beginning of the game. Now, that's not to say that there aren't upgrades and powers that make those things more viable. But no matter what setup you have, even if you're set up to win as many fights as you can, there are fights where it makes sense for you to deliberately throw it and personally as as far as directly comparing it to blood rage i think that's both a plus and a minus it's a plus because the system is richer and more fleshed out right from the beginning but it's a minus in that you don't really have that s- quite that same freedom to build your own engine for points uh, as you did in blood rage well you can sort of lead into it i was just thinking of another
1: strategy while we were talking like this like you can kill all your guys for victory points or you can knowing that you're going to go first or you're going to ally with first or you're going to be second you could leave your guys on the board
0: and get ready for the big harvest right it's 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 got so many options i love it again if you can see two three steps down the road if you can foresee what you need to do in the next turn or the next mandate or even the next round you're going to do well in rising sun you're going to be where you need to be everyone else is going to be struggling to keep up and you're going to be able to be always fighting the next battle instead of uh, instead of compensating for the last one
1: There's eight different territories, there's a stack of tiles, you put them out, and depending on the player count, there's going to be that many battles, so some of the territories will come up blank and you will not fight in that particular territory that round.
0: This is all predetermined before the turn starts. That's another way I think that sometimes the systems combine in potentially unsatisfying ways. For example, everybody starts the game with a fair amount of force in their quote-unquote starting province. And if your starting province doesn't have a a battle in the first round, that's a little bit of a disadvantage because that means that there's one place where you start out where you're not apt to win a fight because provinces where you're not going to win a fight are just inherently less valuable than provinces where you might be able to win a fight. And similarly, uh, there's a whack of endgame scoring based on how many different provinces in which you've won fights. So the game encourages you to go and win fights in lots of different places. There's lots of ways to win points by constantly fighting in the same place, but there's an incentive to go out go and spread out. And if you need a fight to be in a certain province at the end of the game in order to complete your set and it's not randomly pulled and there's not going to be a fight there, that's a bit unfortunate. And I, I, I'm not a huge fan of that element of randomness because that, that element of randomness isn't even just present at setup. It's present at the start of every round. And so it's impossible to plan near the end of your battles for the first round to try to win your battles in the second round because you don't know where the battles in the second round are going to be. I'm not a huge fan of that element. I'm not a huge fan of the fact that in order to complete sets, you might be needing something that just doesn't exist.
1: That it, would it, be it's, rough.
0: It's the nature of the beast. I, I'm not saying this is a serious fault in the game. It's just I I think it's occasionally basically you roll a, a an eight sided die at the beginning of a round, and if it comes up the wrong number, you're basically going to be going to have a, a harder uphill climb than other people, and I, that's just not terribly satisfying in a game that the rest of the time is pretty deterministic, difficult to perceive, but pretty deterministic. So now we're going to talk about expansions. There are going to be two aftermarket
1: expansions: the chemium Bound and the. Dynasty Invasion. Dynasty Invasion. Dynasty Invasion is the two Chinese factions that we've already talked about. And the Kami Unbound is, yes, I pause for a moment because it brings me anger. Yeah. The Kami Unbound is the god system at the top of the board that we've talked about where you, you draw four random gods and it's actually bringing them into the game. As a, what I mean is that now they all will have figures that when you win the majority up there, not only will you get the power of that god, you'll also use their figure, which will have yet another power that changes the game up again. So it's just yet more randomness, more,
0: more. I don't know that I'd call it randomness. It's it definitely comes off as nonsense though because it's this additional subsystem on a game that already has lots of tightly interlocking subsystems and the the powers of the gods on the map are often not particularly related to the powers of the gods at the top of the track. So, you know, normally you're, you're accustomed to sending your Shinto off and they do this effect. And then suddenly they show up on the map and they're extra forced. That's fine. It makes factions that are very good at winning gods stronger. That's another way in which, you know, you add another element and that upsets the balance yet further. But whatever, I can deal with that. The problem is that then there's this other effect, this other ability that a clan has that can change on a dime. It can transfer even in the middle of a fight the control of these, god, these gods on the map can change. And they have powers that really serve to throw a monkey wrench into some of the smoother elements of the game. Like there are a whole bunch of different gods that in- impact who can move where or who can move in or who can move out. And it's tough to keep track of, even the people who control it. I found it very unsatisfying. I didn't like the effect that it had on the balance. I didn't like the effects. I didn't even like any of the individual God effects on the map, to be honest. That's independently of the fact that they were very hard to keep track of and uh, sometimes had arbitrary feeling results. Now, maybe this is just because, again... In Rising Sun, you need several plays to really appreciate how these different things fit together. But to be entirely honest, there's enough variety in the box to keep me more than satisfied. So I don't need extraneous additional systems bolted onto this thing uh, in order to get more longevity out of it. So I, I'm very ill inclined to recommend Kami Unbound to anybody. Certainly, certainly not in your first play. Good lord. No.
1: I, like I even have to, I have to be truthful. I've left it in the box. It's on my shelf, and I can't see it ever including it in my box anytime soon. Like you said, if they can switch at any time, how they switch is because, like we said, you bid at the top. Whoever has the most force. So a lot of the times it's tied because you can't put many troops up there. So. All the ties are worked out by the honor track, and the honor track's going to move during battle. So in the middle of the fight, guess what? I now have more honor than you, so now that god is mine. So we stop, we figure out, you know, the gods move around, and it's very fiddly and would not
0: recommend. That having been said, I think it's safe to say that we're both big fans of the Dynasty invasion. I think both of the two clans there are very interesting. And they add, I think, a lot to the game and the dynamics of the game. Again, I'm not super keen on how you're stronger as one of the dynasty invasion factions if the other one isn't in the game, just by virtue of how they work. But they're great to they're great to work with, and I think even even on a first play, I think it's not too too much to introduce them. And then you have eight factions out of the box if you have got the Kickstarter version, uh, as opposed to just uh, six, which is of course six is too few. So yeah,
1: well, we've talked about this before, and I just want to touch on it very quickly is the fact that there are some things that were obviously developed, feel developed, and some things that don't. There are eight territories in Rising Sun. Now there are eight factions. The models for the two Dynasty invasions look very complete and look as though they were to be included in the game right off the beginning. The camium bound, on the other hand, really feels as though it was something that was on the cutting block. Maybe they didn't feel as though it was ready to go in. But the Kickstarter blew up and then it was added in after the fact. I really feel that it was
0: not developed fully. Maybe if someone's super keen on it, I'll try it again. But honestly, I, I don't I don't see myself ever recommending it to anybody. So should we talk then uh, just a little bit about how ugly this game is? It's awful. Like, it, it's an eyesore. It makes me
1: throw up a little in my mouth when I see it on the table. Um, I'd rather just print and play it myself. But, you know... You know, you have to deal with what you have to deal with.
0: In all seriousness, we, we talked about this before when we talked about Kickstarter exclusives. Uh, the the Kickstarter exclusive strongholds are all very beautiful. The Kickstarter exclusive strongholds for the Turtle Clan are amazing. I mean, I know everyone says this, that the publisher said this during the Kickstarter campaign. You have to see these turtles. They're great. They're just really great turtles. I, lo- I especially love the sculpts of the figures of the Dynasty Invasion, actually. I think those are some of my favorite figures in the game. And the figures are all great. And uh, some people are tired of minis and games. That's fine. I see where you're coming from. I honestly do. But these are figures that you're going to be moving around the board. These are figures that you need to be able to glance uh, from across the table and see how many of different factions are involved in a fight. And so there are usability improvements of these figures over just simple cardboard chits. And again, I would be worried in a, in a copy where the strongholds were represented by card, cardboard chits, I'd be concerned that I'd just lose them in, in, in the middle of all the other stuff in the area. It's a very, very attractive game. All the Kickstarter exclusive bits are really neat. They really did a great job. When people were talking about how how great this game looked when they got their earlier copies, I'm like, yeah, 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 I've done Cool Coolman or Not Kickstarters before. I know what they put out. I know that they put out stuff of, of good quality. I was still blown away by how nice everything is. This, I really do think, is a new standard for them. I think it's head and shoulders above a lot of their prior productions. And so it really is quite stunning to look at. I don't think pictures do it justice. When it's all set up, I think it really is an impressive production.
1: Overall, Rising Sun, I really enjoy it. It's the balance. They use this yin and yang symbol in order to create alliances, and it's sort of what I feel is balance. You really need to tie everything together, be it the cards, the player abilities, the way you get your engine running. You really need to be watching everything in order to get everything out of Rising Sun.
0: So can you talk a little bit about some negatives I have with the game? You sure can. I agree. I think it's a very good game. I don't think it's great, but I think it's very good. I've I've talked a little bit about my concerns with respect to what elements are in the game having an influence on how the systems interact, which I think undercuts the beauty of the systems interacting. One of the things that I really don't like about the game is how crucial the first round is. And if you end up in a hole in this game, there are very few ways to pull yourself out. I've not seen any strong avenues for things like clever reversals or come-from-behind victories. Uh, Unlike in, again, unlike in Blood Rage where you can constantly tinker with your engine, you can, you know, the third round in Blood Rage is more consequential than the prior rounds, so you can really set up a different card engine if you draft the right cards and set yourself in a position to benefit off of different things and the stakes escalate, things don't really escalate in the same way in Rising Sun to the same extent, and if you have a terrible first round, or if you have a – there are only three rounds of the game, or if the early part of the round is disastrous, you're behind the eight ball, you weren't able to get enough income, income is really, really crucial, and there's not a whole lot of clever ways to get money. So if you're not able to pull things together and you only have a few crucial breakpoints to do that – then you're going to have a really, really tough road of it. And I have seen this game produce utter and complete blowouts in a way that not a lot of other games do. I've seen games with scores of, you know, 125 to 10. And that's really something. And this was not a question of somebody... That that particular game I'm thinking of wasn't even a game of somebody who'd played half a dozen times against someone who'd never played before. This was, I think, everyone that was playing their second game. And so that isn't necessarily a huge problem with the design, but it just goes to show that this is an opaque system with lots of moving parts. And if someone's not able to figure it out, someone's not able able to figure out the second order considerations and they they can't get any money and they can't get their guys out, it can be a very, very, very tough uphill climb and there's not really a lot of ways to pull that out. No, you definitely need to flow with what's going on. You need to... You know, watch what's going on. You have
1: to watch what your opponents are doing, and you need to be able to suss out ways to get victory points at all times, even when it's not your turn. It's it's a great system. So that's what we
0: think of Rising Sun. So moving on, let's talk about our feature topic of the day, and that is the question of whether or not there are inappropriate themes, or whether or not it is ever inappropriate or immoral to have a game represent certain events. So, Walker, you're the one who proposed this theme. What specifically were you thinking about? The thoughts I
1: have, it's all the time I started this hobby out, you know, playing Axis and Allies and all these types of games. And I always wondered what war veterans think of when they see people sitting down and and reenacting what they had to go through and sometimes even changing something very emotional them something very hard fought for them and for the country and we sort of just sit down and arbitrarily say oh now look you know germany's winning world war ii and and sometimes i really wonder is that right you know is this something that we should be doing
0: I can respect the personal feelings of people not wanting those things to be presented. It's the same way about film, right? If you see a movie, whether it's a documentary or a a drama or even, I don't know, an action flick about something that you were involved with very seriously, then I can certainly understand not wanting to watch that kind of movie. If you see something that was very traumatic and deeply meaningful for meaningful you rendered as entertainment, that can obviously be troubling. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's a problematic piece of entertainment. It just means it's troubling for you and you don't want any part of it. When it's the case that it's abstracted out to a, a big geopolitical level and it represents uh, the war as being some sort of massive chess game, I actually appreciate that because it emphasizes that there were these purely geopolitical, real elements motivating it and i don't i when when war gets overly sentimentalized that's when i think things get problematic allow me to segue into into uh war games that i i I tend to find actually deeply problematic and those are american civil war games i don't enjoy american civil war games in part because i don't find the american civil war particularly interesting but nobody in the sort of legitimate mainstream of western culture thinks oh well the nazis must not have been all that bad There are people who think that, and there are even people who say that, but everyone recognizes that as as, as effectively beyond the pale of reasonable discussion, because we're all on the same page about what a, what a terrible regime it was. That can't be said for the American Civil War. The American Civil War is constantly being relitigated in history, in popular culture, in contemporary uh, contemporary American politics. And so when you have games that talk about the American Civil War and they lionize these Confederate generals, it's like, oh, Robert E. Lee was such an honorable, decent man, and he was so noble and such a talented general. That's where I get ooped out. That's where I think, think things start to get dangerous because when you start to romanticize the specific ideals that motivate odious political regimes like the American Confederacy, then you're in trouble. But people don't do that with World War II games. There aren't World War II games where people talk about how, you know, the Third Reich was, oh, look at all their economic successes. You know, they they had such a successful economic model. Look at their full employment records and things like that. That doesn't happen. Context matters is what I'm saying. And the context of the contemporary view of the Second World War, I think means that you can do games with a certain modicum of respect and it not be deeply problematic. I don't think that's true of things like the American Civil War. I don't think that's true of a lot of other armed conflicts. All of that having been said, there are there are counter examples. There was a there's a very famous uh, card game that I quite like called Upfront. And even hardcore war gamers were deeply upset at the fact that the cover picture of Upfront is an SS officer in full uniform. And the way that it's, th- this is this is again about context, the way that it's presented, the cover image of that of that ss officer the prominence that his face takes on on the the front cover people thought that that was inappropriate people thought that that was problematic and and troubling because that became you know the face of the game some ss officer so just because a subject matter is okay and i personally don't think that any subject matter is necessarily off the table how you execute it matters has there been any actual game that while you're playing it you sort of started to feel uncomfortable absolutely so there's a game called ladies and gentlemen and this is a relatively light party game where half the table represents the gentlemen who conduct business and earn money, and the other half of the table play as ladies whose job it is to shop and put together outfits. Basically, my reaction to the game was, first, I thought it was hilarious because it was really, really good at at encouraging kind of light role play because people are paired off, right? Every lady has a gentleman, and the lady is like... Look, darling, I need this brooch. And if I don't get this brooch, I'm going to shank you in the face. So you'd better earn this, earn me this money. What have you been doing all day? To which the gentleman will say, look, look, I'm trying. It's harder than it looks. I have to, just, just, I, I got you a brooch last turn. It's like, no, 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 I need a new brooch. And the thing is, it's hilarious and it's fun. But then about halfway through the game, I started thinking, wait, this is doing a really good job of reinforcing traditional gender stereotypes. This is doing a really good job of playing into toxic cultural norms. And that was when I was like, I think this may be a one-and-done game here, because it's funny, but in the, in the wrong kind of way. And that actually is where I come down on, it sort of summarize my attitude towards these different things. Does this game either encourage you to, or itself perpetuate toxic cultural norms. Uh, that's why I think American Civil War games are often problematic and why I think that World War II games are often not problematic because we don't have... Yes, there are Nazis. There are Nazis in the world. There are neo-Nazis and there are, there are, there are white supremacists and they need to be c- combated. But there's no mainstream acceptance... Broadly, I don't know, give it a few years, maybe maybe it'll change. But there's no main, uh, mainstream acceptance of a sort of counter-narrative about what Nazis are. But there is a mainstream narrative in America about what the Civil War was about, and about the history of slavery and race relations. And so American Civil War game's problematic, World War II game's not. My one game is a game from GMT called uh, Distant Plane.
1: And I legitimately halfway through, you're looking down at these cards and they're actual photos of soldiers. And this is like a conflict that's happening right now. It's still happening today. And you're playing this game and you're looking at these guys that could be alive or dead, at, at, you know, at this very moment or in a fight at this very moment. And I just like looked at it and went, no, I'm just, I cannot do this anymore. I hear you. And the other one was uh, when people started playing Secret Hitler. And it's just seemed a little, at the time, you know, I've played it since then, but at the time it just seemed a little light and and my my reasoning was giving anyone like that any FaceTime whatsoever in that sort of context
0: i i didn't feel comfortable with i hear you i'm i'm kind of my views on secret hitler are evolving both in terms of as a game and as a cultural artifact so i definitely hear where you're coming from
1: these kind of things you always get in trouble like is it even bad for us to bring it up so what i'm going to bring up next is just slaves in games and there's someone that brings you know games in our group They have slams in them and people always sometimes (laughs) criticize them out or call them out on it. And my feeling about this is that it's always something that's, it is something that's happened. It is, it's just a fact that it, it took place, but do we need them in the games? And it's, I think it's always dependent on how it's presented. I agree. Context matters. as, As long as it's, they're in the game because this is what that particular faction used, or this is what was actually in that particular time period. And I usually have no problem with it in that context.
0: Slavery, I think, is one of those damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't things, because if you represent, if it's a game that seeks to model a particular historical reality and you include slavery in it, then it's, you know, you're going to make people deeply uncomfortable because they don't want, even in a simulated way, to be using slaves. But by the same token... And I made this criticism of Mombasa, if you are going to be modeling a set of events where slavery was used and/or rampant, but you omit slavery so as to make the player feel more comfortable, are you literally whitewashing the history? are you and in then instead then trying to create a counter narrative where you know everyone was a gainfully employed tradesman in this context and everyone was very happy to show up to work. So I don't know that there's a good answer. I can't flag one game. It's actually a, the reprint is up on Kickstarter now. I didn't. I don't think the game's great, but the way that it handled slavery was very, very good. I think it's a game called Endeavor, and you could get all these different cards. Some of them were slightly under they were a little cheaper than other ones, and that's because you were engaging slaves. But, near the end of the game, there's the possibility of someone at significant expense abolishing slavery, abolishing the slave trade. And then what happens is everybody who's engaged s- slaves in the past, they lose all those cards, and they get punched in the face. Uh, so it's kind of on a pure gameplay element. It's just a risk reward kind of kind of discount thing. Do I take the discount and the possibility of hit? But in the in the in the broader context of the game, it's actually kind of neat. Because it 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 serves to it, it serves to allow a sort of evolution of the game where slavery is abolished and the, the slave owners were rightly shamed for having exploited these people. How successful it is in doing that in terms of the, the game context is of course up for debate, but it at least tries to grapple with it in a serious way, not in a frivolous way. When Five Tribes came out, that Days of Wonder game, and just slaves were one of the suits of the card, and they said, well, you know, Arabian Nights, you know, there were slaves everywhere and things like that. The basic response on a lot of people, and I thought this was fundamentally right, was you didn't need to include them. This is this is trivial. It doesn't really serve to influence how the gameplay works. And, yeah, they were part of the stories. But come on, guys. Like, it's just, you know, you know we Let, – Let's move on. Exactly. And so, again, context matters. I agree with you entirely. It's about not trivializing it. And not ignoring it when it was a key part of uh, key part of history. Like my, my response to Mombasa was, if you want to make a fantasy, st- uh, the designer in the, the rule book says basically making a fantasy version of, of, of companies working in Africa. And my response to that is, if you're making a fantasy version already, why make it in Africa? Why make it with historical companies? If, you're, if you want to omit all the bad stuff, set it somewhere else. You're not treating the original topic with the kind of delicacy and sensitivity that it deserves. So you can set it anywhere you want. Go ahead and do it. We also talked about this briefly when we were talking about hate, right? A lot of people are objecting to hate. And again, I think context matters. And just to repeat, I think it depends on whether or not a game feeds into a toxic cultural norm. I don't think we have much to worry about in terms of normalizing cannibalistic uh, post-apocalyptic warlords. If there were, I think hate would be problematic. If hate had dealt with you know, trading women as chattel, which is a perfectly plausible thing to happen in a post-apocalypse. But if that were an element in hate, I would say that hate is probably not a game I'd want to play and probably a game that I would have said that the publishers ought to have rethought. But they, don't, they didn't do that. The game could have involved horrific incidents of sexual assault represented in the game. Again, very plausible in the context of a post-apocalyptic world, but they didn't do that. And so because those attitudes towards women are part of a toxic cultural uh, norm and toxic cultural standard, I think whether this was deliberately or just by accident, they managed to you know have a game where there's lots of barbarism And lots of terrible things that are not morally appropriate, but you can still put out a morally appropriate product that has those elements in them. This is not about being offended. It's not so much about feelings, right? I think it's incumbent on us, on consumers, to not necessarily phrase it just in terms of "oh, well, my feelings were hurt," but instead about does this feed into a toxic atmosphere? Does this under, does this prop up a norm that we want to move past? Those are the fundamental questions. It's about behaving responsibly rather than worrying about feelings necessarily. My moral framework doesn't really care much about feelings, but my moral framework cares a lot about duty and responsibility. and so that's how I, I, I try to emphasize it. All right, let's try let's quickly tie this back in to Rising Sun. Rising Sun is a game
1: where they've completely represented an entire culture of Japan and a little bit of China, their entire religious system for that era. And I think they did it in a way that offends shouldn't offend anyone. I shouldn't know. And I think they've done that in a way that that is inoffensive. The same, I think, can't be said for Axe and Allies Zombies, where it's an actual event where many people suffered and died, and now you're going to be introducing mythical creatures in. That being said, there are many occult World War II games, right, where they bring in, you know, zombie Nazis, you know, stuff like that. And I don't remember having a problem
0: with that before. I don't know why all of a sudden I'm having a problem with it now, but there you are. Yeah, zombie Nazis have been around for a long time. I don't know what the, the the association is. I'm going to disagree with you a tiny little bit about Rising Sun's uh, thematic representation because, I, you know, to me it's it's so far removed from any element of reality that it just becomes more or less themeless because – I mean, I've talked a a bit before about how this was, you know, cobbling together various Adrian Smith pieces of artwork and saying, "Okay, well, now all these different pieces of art, they're all the same clan, even though they don't really have many visual touchstones. It's just it's a lot of severed heads. It's a lot of skulls. It's a lot of weird stuff. To me, it's just pure fantasy, especially the way that it represents uh, ritual suicide. I mean, we in in the West were told the story about ritual suicide and the way that it works in Rising Sun. Is just bizarre and pretty much unthematic entirely. The way that it works in Rising Sun is you can march your guys into into a fight purely so that you can spend money on an action space so that they all kill themselves and then you still win the fight. It's completely bizarre and absurd. I probably would have preferred it had they spent the necessary five minutes to think of a better way, uh, a different way to to, to label the um, uh, the mechanism. I don't think it's irresponsible necessarily because again attitudes towards uh, samurai and ritual suicide, my understanding is that in, in um in a lot of contemporary Japanese culture the, the attitudes of that, that is ridicule, that the samurai are basically regarded as, you know, idiots because they basically were. The same way that we regard a lot of the elements of chivalry as basically stupid. You know, not not chivalry in the, the contemporary sense of of, of being a, a good and upsetting person, but in the sense of, you know, a lot of medieval knights were just Ignorant, diseased savages who use their positions of power to abuse people. So I, you know, I think I think Rising Sun could have been a little less weird and grab bag in its approach approaches to Asian culture. Uh, I think. There are other games put out by Europeans that treat with Japan a little more sensibly. Uh, Senji is a good example. I like Senji a lot, uh, and I think it's 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 more grounded. But you know, if you want to have a fantasy world with a whole bunch of oni fighting, all these weird mystical things showing up, then you know, I I don't think it's anything to get worked up over. I just no. Don't think that's it... what I'm saying. Their intent was good. There was no you know, there was no mocking
1: intent. There was no in you know, there was no attempt to make it look humorous or silly. Or it was all done. Under an umbrella of respect,
0: I wouldn't go that far. I think <laughs> I agree that there wasn't an intent to insult or deride either a period of Japanese history or current Japanese culture. I don't think it's safe to say that they did it with an atti- attitude of deep respect. You know what I will say is legitimately irresponsible is you know their lack of research into how anything worked. And I think this this actually go- ties into I should have mentioned this before when talking about Rising Sun how themeless it is. You know, the, the the famous Katahi incident where they pulled some some dude's name off of Wikipedia who was never represented in Japanese mythology. But it gets even worse than that when you reflect on it, because it specifically says in the doctored Wikipedia page that this guy was some sort of raging monkey god. Right. If you're making a thematic game and you can't even bother doing research past Wikipedia, that's fine. But the Katahi in the game doesn't have anything to do with rage or, or, or any, anything of the topic. He's good at harvesting for crying out loud. So not only is it the case they were just pulling random bits from every you know various bits of pop culture and Wikipedia, they didn't even spend the necessary half second to try to tie together these random bits with actual gameplay effects. I'm wondering maybe
1: they found out in time and know that he's a farmer, so they... Changed it to a Harvest thing? Oh, wow. If that were true, that would be interesting. And the other thing I'm, I want to just tie back in is to the Axe and Allies zombie thing. I'm wondering maybe it's because it's going to be such a mass market thing where usually the other Nazi occult things are so small it's not going to go to the mass market where this is going to be a Hasbro Axe and Allies out to the mass market type thing.
0: Well, in video games, they've been doing... Uh, Nazi zombies are pretty mainstream. I mean, Wolfen, Wolfenstein did it, the original one, back in the 90s. Uh, don't the uh, Call of Duty games do zombie Nazis all the time? And all the other, like, half-dozen other World War II games that, that always come out? Yeah, maybe I'm just
1: an idiot. It's how they do it, I guess. I'm, it's 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 The proof is in the pudding. Yeah,
0: again, context matters, how it's executed. I share your misgivings, suffice to say. <laughs> there you go wrap us up well that's going to do it for your episode of so very wrong about games thank you very very much for joining us we hope to see you again next week if you would like to get in touch with us you can find my co-host mike walker at just at gmail.com you can send him an email there it's j-u-s-t-r-o-l-l-d-a-d-i-c-e you can find me mark bigney on twitter at all the games you like please also visit our facebook group you can send us a message there or comment on any of our links we do read everything you send us and we'll try to get back to you if we can So, we hope to see you again next week. Thanks very much for joining us. Take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.